Welcome to the Michelle Miao Show at the Commonwealth Club of California. I'm John Zipperer, the club's vice president of media and editorial, and Michelle's co-host for this program. Now, we hope you are staying safe and are well wherever you are. We are eager to return to in-person programming, and you can keep an eye out for our reopening news. We look forward to seeing you in person again when it is safe at the Commonwealth Club's headquarters in San Francisco. Until that happens, we are doing all of our programming online. This is the latest in more than 450 online programs the club has produced since the beginning of this pandemic. You can find all of our upcoming programs, as well as audio and video from our past programs at commonwealthclub.org. Now, if you're watching us live on YouTube, use the chat box to submit questions for our special guest today. And now let me introduce Michelle Miao, the producer and the host of the Michelle Miao Show and a member of the Commonwealth Club's Board of Governors. Good to see you again, Michelle. Great to see you, John, and I can't wait for the day in which I can see you in person. Still distancing, though, uh, but um, I can't guarantee I won't give you a great big hug. Thank you all for joining us. We have a great program for you. We will discuss anti-Asian racism in Hollywood and the mainstreaming of it. What does that actually mean? So our guest today is B. Wong, who's the son of immigrants. He's a Hmong American actor and activist and starred as Tao Vong Lore in Clint Eastwood's 2008 film Grand Torino. He's appeared in Modern Family and Co-Misery. He has performed in independent films and on stage at Brown Brown University, where he received a 2016 liberal arts degree in international politics, media, and cultural studies. He has worked at MSNBC with the Rachel Maddow uh, and also at The Economist and a research institute at Columbia University. After several years working as a, as a print journalist, a nonfiction writer, and a policy researcher, he has moved to somewhere in California to devote himself to acting, filmmaking, and other creative pursuits. Be welcome to the show. Thank you so much for being with us this afternoon. Thank you for having me. So, yeah, we just saw it. Um, Clint Eastwood at the time played Walt Kowalski, who's a racist retired Ford worker and Korean War veteran living in a, um, a Detroit neighborhood. And a Hmong family moves next door, and you play the character Tao, who tries to steal his vintage 1972 Grand Torino as part of a gang initiation. Um, so we'll start there. But... Uh, Let's talk about landing the role as Tao. How did you get it? Well, I was a 15-year-old um, living in the Twin Cities area of Minnesota. Um, at the time, there were a lot of ethnic newspapers. As you can imagine, there were several uh, dedicated specifically to the Hmong American community in the Twin Cities metro area. One was Hmong Times, the other was Hmong Today, and several others that were also Asian-American specific. But I guess there might have been some initial process of outreach to these publications and to um, a lot of the interlocutors in the community here. Um, But not just here, also in California, here, um, and in uh, Michigan. Um, So um, uh, what you had was they were sending out all, a lot of this information to these different community centers, and the community centers were then um, sort of disseminating the, the information itself to everyone else. So at the time um, when I was 15, uh, what we first uh, knew about the project was just that it was going to be a Hollywood film made on Hmong Americans. So we didn't know that it was attached, uh, that Clint Eastwood was attached to the project. Um, but, you know, it was very, um, very mysterious and it just generated a lot of attention and a lot of excitement and energy. And then within a couple of months, um, you know, it was made known that it was going to be a Clint Eastwood uh, film and that Clint Eastwood was going to be in it. And then they gave an actual uh, summary and synopsis. So I was 15 year old me, you know, wanting to go into medicine. Um, because I was a starry-eyed, you know, youth who thought that I could change the world uh, through medicine, that medicine was uh, the agent of change. Um, So that was sort of the direction that I was going in, Um, you know, having come from a working-class background with both parents who are refugees themselves from uh, the secret war in Laos, um, Hmong Americans themselves now, 
um, you know, of course I aspired to, you know, uh, a profession that has offered a lot of security and stability. So that meant going into medicine. So when I heard about this opportunity, um, you know, I had also been very politically involved and was very much um, had a kind of racial co uh, consciousness. So that meant for me that like, oh, you know, it, it was, you know, my mongness kind of like, and my Asian Americanness both influenced my political thinking and my, my consciousness, my political consciousness. So ultimately what happened was I saw that um, they had uh, uh, an initial uh, uh, open call, um, but they also had a, an opportunity for people to submit their materials separately. So, you know, if you didn't go to the open call, you can send everything in this way and then they would have a chance to look at all of your, you know, acting and talent uh, materials and review it. And then what they did with me, because I sent in my stuff and didn't go to the open call, they wrote back to me and said, hey, you know, send us, uh, we'll give you the sides. The sides are an excerpt from the full script and uh, record yourself and actually just send us this first take. So that's what I did. So I never went to the open call. Um, and so soon after that first audition, uh, within a couple of weeks, I got the second, uh, the callback. And then I went and auditioned for it again. And then a couple of months, um, you know, hearing nothing from Warner Brothers, I thought that I didn't get cast anymore until I got a phone call. Um, you know, at the time we didn't have cell phones. And so it was just, it was just phone lines. So it was a mysterious call in the middle of the afternoon. And um, I picked it up because I, I did at that point because I was just like, oh God, like anytime anyone calls, it has to be Warner Brothers or Hollywood or Clint Eastwood. So, you know, I raced to the phone, I picked it up and I slowly answered it and I said, hello. And then it was a woman on the phone. And at the time it was Dina Eastwood, uh, Clint's uh, wife then. Um, I don't believe that they're married anymore, but she she uh, answered it. We kind of went back and forth, and then she said, "Oh well, um, we were wondering if you would like to play the role of Tao Veng Lord." And so, you know, from that point on, uh, within a couple of days, I got the script. Everything sort of became a kind of whirlwind, um, or rather, it hit me like a whirlwind. And then one thing led to the next. I ended up uh, within a couple of weeks flying into Michigan, to Detroit, where we shot the film. That was, in a nutshell, what happened. Um, several months just condensed into that one little speech. <laughs> that, that that must have been such an emotional time because here you are from outside of Hollywood, from outside of acting, and uh, kind of throw a Hail Mary pass, if you will, to get into this. And, and you not only, I mean, there are so many actors who would just kill to get the, the, the chance to test for the role and, and to actually get it. Um, and it, it, it's interesting. So I want to ask because Hollywood, of course, is famous for hiring anyone vaguely Asian looking to play whatever Asian role they might have. Um, and uh, were they specifically looking for a Hmong actor? Were there other actors, you know, did you later learn there were other actors who were among finalists who were not Hmong? I mean, how important to them was it that the actor playing this role is Hmong? Well, I think... At the time, um, Warner when Warner Brothers was um, casting for Gran Torino, they definitely wanted a Hmong person. I think that much I knew, and I think that there was an attempt to cast other non-Hmong uh, Asian American actors. Um, but I think that there was some kind of push, um, some kind of groundswell, and it might have been a grassroots effort to really get uh, Hollywood to cast a Hmong person for these, or Hmong people for these Hmong roles. So I, I think that, you know, um, without the kind of, of mo mobilization that happened at that time, um, it would have likely gone to a non-Hmong Asian American person. What was the uh, behind the scenes like? I mean, you know, I'm trying to put myself in your shoes at 15 years old and never having set foot on a set in that way. And with this big actor, what, what was it like? Like, how were you, how were you treated and what were the experiences? Well, I was a 15 year old, um, you know, 
someone from my background um, doesn't grow up ever thinking that they will ever end up in a Hollywood feature film with a Hollywood icon. Um, it's just, you know, something that I never dreamt about. It's not an opportunity that I ever thought would be something that I get to experience in my lifetime. Um, so, you know, it was very exciting. I think that um, when I realized that they were casting specifically for Hmong Americans for these Hmong roles, I felt empowered. I felt that I had a chance to bring myself and my body to experience as a Hmong person and as an Asian American person to the role and to, to give oxygen to the character and to give the, my truth as a Hmong person to this character. So, you know, I, I went in feeling very empowered, feeling very, um, you know, starry-eyed as I mentioned earlier, but also like just very um, excited at the prospect of being able to contribute to this project. And, um, you know, as, as someone who didn't act before, I felt that, you know, I could really use this opportunity to also, you know, um, add a different layer that, you know, someone else who isn't Hmong would be able to, to do. And so, you know, in some bits and parts of the film, I dropped in a few, you know, Hmong words. And then I also, you know, slipped in a couple of, you know, personal uh, names here and there, um, referencing uh, a teacher of mine. So, you know, I was able to do a lot of these things, but I still also realized that, you know, I was just an actor. And because I was just an actor, I think I um, had to realize the really strict and sometimes rigid hierarchy of production and of Hollywood film productions. Um, and so that at times was also a reminder of where I stood um, in relation to, you know, the cast and the crew, everyone else. Um, but for sure, I think that, you know, a lot of times when people ask me about the role specifically and my experiences on set, um, a lot say that, oh, you know, well, you, if you saw that there were a lot of slurs and a lot of, you know, really nasty things being said, like at the time, and when you saw the script, why did you take the role? So for me, you know, I was a 15 year old and I was on a set. So everything felt very artificial. You know, it was an artifice. There were lights everywhere, cameras everywhere. So it was really hard to feel like this was, you know, real. Um, but of course, that's the whole craft of acting, right? Is that you have to convince everyone that what you're experiencing on set is real. But because of that, you know, I think I kind of separated myself from all of the, the slurs and everything because I had to convince myself that, oh, you know, this is not a reflection of social reality. Um, but of course, you know, I came into this project having experienced all of these different things being, uh, things being set out to me and having been physically assaulted myself, um, you know, because I was Asian, um, you know, these are all experiences that I've had growing up. So yeah, it definitely felt different only after the film was released. Um, and in op-ed that I wrote recently for NBC, I talked about how sitting in theaters um, and watching everyone laugh and going to more and more like screenings and seeing more and more people laugh, especially white audience members, I just began to ask myself, like, what's just so funny? You know, like I, at, at that point, I was just like so bothered by it because it was the phenomenon of laughter. Um, it was very intriguing. I just, you know, I... And that's sort of what led me to do a lot of what I do. So we want to get into more about exactly what you're doing as, as well as more about this. I wanted to kind of step a bit back in talking about where you're coming from and, and, and the, you, know, you talked about kind of trying to weave some, some elements of your life and uh, into this, into the movie. Um, personally, I grew up in what would it be far Eastern Wisconsin. And uh, during the seventies, I remember in grade school, we were, you know, teachers would be talking about, you're going to be seeing some Hmong students coming in and giving us some background on what, who they are, where they're coming from, et cetera. We were kind of told that, I don't know if this is true or not, or they were just trying to make us feel welcoming or something, but they, they were like, well, our area is, is, is very much similar to the area they came from. Um, 
And so I guess I kind of grew up kind of thinking, oh, well, Manitowoc, Wisconsin is the Hmong American capital of the world, which of course is ridiculous. Later, I did learn that the, the Twin Cities is, is another center and obviously much larger than, than Manitowoc. So could you maybe give us a sense of what was the Hmong community like there? How were they treated or not treated? You, you kind of mentioned some, some scraps you got into and some reactions you got, but I mean, kind of, of the wider lens of, you know, how the Hmong Americans fit into the Twin Cities uh, greater metropolitan area, if you will. Well, I was actually born in um, Fresno, California, so Central Valley, and at that, uh, by the time that I was one or two, or two or three, um, my parents moved to the Twin Cities, which is where my uncle was, and so my father wanted to be closer to him. Um, I, for whatever reasons, my uncle ended there, ended up in the uh, in the Twin Cities um, before my father did, when he uh, was able to um, seek asylum here um, in the from the refugee camps in Thailand. And I guess today, looking back, um, I have a lot of different reactions to. Um, just how well-grounded um, the Hmong American community uh, was and continues to be. Um, as you said um, earlier, uh, the Twin Cities is actually one of many other um, hubs uh, for the Hmong American, Hmong American communities here in the US. Uh, but I believe according to um, my understanding, the Twin Cities actually has the biggest population of Hmong Americans. In the U.S. and in the diaspora um, outside of Asia, um, actually the largest population of Hmong people are in China, and then I, I believe in Vietnam, and then in, in Laos, and Thailand, and then Burma, and then in the U.S. and France and elsewhere. But um, yeah, growing up, I think that there was a strong sense of of community here. I think that everyone was really um, uh, galvanized to really speak to the community and to the needs of the community. Um, you know, there were a lot of political leaders, of elected officials at the time. As I said earlier, there were a lot of these, uh, you know, Hmong-centric uh, newspapers. And so it was catered to mostly Hmong American readers. Sometimes it was published in Hmong, but, um, you know, the point was just that there was a lot of of Hmong influence everywhere. There were Hmong stores, Hmong journalists, Hmong writers. Um, I, I would say that the, the Hmong American community has a pretty strong voice here. And that definitely influenced uh, a lot of my thinking at the time. Um, I was politically involved. I was very much, um, you know, w working within the community and also doing a lot of various things um, with organizations that were catered to the Hmong American uh, youth and and wider community so yeah I, I i felt that the twin cities was unique in that sense and because of that um you know when gran torino happened uh the 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 movement and the energy was just really uh where it was supposed to be and uh, everyone was very excited energized and you know everyone just wanted to take this opportunity to do the best that we could to represent the Hmong american uh experience. And I have to ask, sorry, Michelle, I'm going to jump in with another question. Um, was your family glad that you were trying Hollywood or were they like, we were really hoping for a doctor? <laughs> well, I think that um, I have a very different experience from most Asian American actors who go into the industry. Um, a lot of people, right, like have to decide whether going to school or going into acting and then have to start their careers from bottom up. Uh, whereas I got the opportunity of just auditioning, um, you know, it, it, on a lark. I wasn't necessarily chasing after the career at the time. So it wasn't something that my parents were fearing. It wasn't something that they were like screaming um, uh, against. So uh, when I did get the role, they were, of course, happy uh, because I, you know, somehow jumped from zero to 100 um, into this film. So because of that, I think that they never really had any objections to my 
going into acting. And because I had my foot in the door because of Gran Torino, I think it's easier and it's easier for both of my parents to reconcile with the fact that they're not going to have me as a doctor. <laughs> uh, I want to go back to the film and I guess what we can point out is uh, what's considered problematic. I mean, the first time that I got called a gook, you know, it was scary. Um, at the same time, I didn't really know what the word meant. But then when people started saying it more and more and more and say, and, and also with go back to your country, that's when I realized that, oh, okay, I think, I don't think they want me here. I don't think the word gook is a good thing. Um, but watching the film when I was a teenager, I was excited to see Southeast Asians or Hmong people of all Asians on screen with this big old actor. And Clint Eastwood actually is a very big actor in the Asian community, especially Asian men, because, you know, cowboy war movies, I don't know. Um, but anyway, so seeing it in the movie again, it led me to, to ask this question, like, who, who wrote the movie? Why are they throwing out these racial slurs, like, so liberally, like it, it almost takes away from the character itself. I get that Clint Eastwood plays a racist guy, but do racist people actually say these racist things every other sentence? I don't know. So I found out who the screenwriter is, this guy named Nick Shank, who at the time was considered a rookie. He had never really sold the script before, but he worked at a factory with other Hmong Americans and heard their war stories and then wanted to, to write a movie about Hmong Americans. Except in Gran Torino, I'm not sure that Hmong Americans are portrayed as Americans. They're portrayed as, with some of these, uh, the words that they use in the script, like barbarians or, you know, um, chinks or, and, I'm sorry, and, and I, I know that these are trigger words, so please bear with me. Um, but, you know, stuff like that. So I'd love to get your take on if this film is representational of Hmong Americans or, you know, what did what did you what do we gather from this film? What who is this film actually for? Thank you for asking the question. Um, to answer this question, of course, I want to share a very quick story. Um, shortly after Gran Torino was released at the end of two thousand eight, I gave a talk um, at the University of the Pacific in Stockton, California. The event itself was called the Real Gran Torino Story: Stockton's Secret War on the streets. So you'll, you'll notice the use of secret war there as a kind of metaphor, right? And for those who are unaware, a secret war is referencing the CIA's uh, illegal military efforts in Laos during the Vietnam War. So this part of history is very important because you won't understand why it's called this. But um, the, the point of this event was to use the war itself and uh, Gran Torino as vehicles to talk about the real issues of Southeast Asian American gang and gun violence there in the city of Stockton. Um, and so, you know, they, a lot of things were talked about that, that day. Um, politicians were there, state level, local officials. Um, a lot of them heard from uh, directly from uh, members of the Hmong, Lao, Mien, Viet and Cambodian communities there. And, you know, strangely enough, as much as I cringe a little bit to say this, it was because of Gran Torino. You know, I, that's when I realized that a film isn't just a film. Because, um, you know, before then, I kept on saying that a film is just a film. I was sitting in theaters also, or going to theaters thinking, oh, a film is just a film until I saw the laugh, until I heard the laughter, until, you know, I realize what was happening with this film outside of its, you know, theatrical-ness, <laughs> outside of it being just cinema. And so after Stockton, I was invited to speak more. I went from venue to venue, speaking engagement and more. And, you know, I, I gave a lot of presentations and talked at like various venues and at universities. And, you know, whenever I presented or talked, um, it was always very uncanny because the question about the slurs in Gran Torino uh, was raised, right? And and it was always an Asian American audience member who raised that question. And it was always mostly a white audience member who would then say in response that they themselves didn't find the slurs offensive and that those who did were just too sensitive. So 
you know, at these public events, it was if someone raised a question about the slurs, just like that, someone would say, get over it or learn to take a joke. <laughs> it was a recurring thing. And I think for me, what this was a teaching moment was to, to show me uh, during this moment of COVID-19, just what it meant to experience and to live this anti-Asian racism, right? That we are always being reduced to these jokes or our issues are always being reduced into these non-issues because it's just a joke or, you know, learn to just have fun or whatever, right? Or get over it. It's not that serious. Um, we're always sort of being placed into this kind of um, hierarchy of oppression about whether or not uh, anti-Asian racism is something that is real, is something that is harmful enough for us to pay attention to. And so that to me, I think was an opening for why I felt that it's so important to continue these, this conversation. And so of course I was very politicized. And so I went on to continue speaking more and more. And of course, you know, that's when I realized that when you are an actor of color or even a person of color with some level of mainstream or public visibility, you carry the burden and the weight of having been made into the mouthpiece and face of your community. You know, and, and in many ways, it's not fair. And in other ways, like, of course, uh, you know, this was something that uh, gave me the experience and opportunity to speak up. And so that meant at the time that I, did, I had the privilege not to, to speak up. Or I didn't have the privilege to not speak up. I had to. Um, you know, and from this point on, that's when I realized that, hey, you know, um, representation is a double-edged sword. Um, you know, whether the, the negative stereotypes or the use of the slurs were a lot har more harmful than giving us this brief and uh, temporary representation and visibility in, in mainstream culture, you know, like, what, what do we do? You know, do we um, uh, get into some kind of Faustian pact um, and sell ourselves in order to you know, mainstream all of the, the slurs, right? And when I wrote in my uh, op-ed about how the film mainstreamed the slurs, what I meant was precisely that it, you know, the film was screened in theaters across the country and around the world, and many heard that those slurs being said and uh, saw many, uh, many of the characters in the movie saying those words. And the fact is, is that the film is also on Netflix and, you know, it's something that I also want to point out that like, I don't necessarily, um, I don't necessarily believe that, I want to regulate um, speech, right? I think that this is a problem of the ways that we talk often about, um, about free speech and about what we have to uh, have to give up in order to um, in order to do the things that we need to do, right? And all the laughter and the belittling through the so-called harmless jokes, right? That was done under under the guise of free speech too. And and of course, as I said earlier, it was indicative of the racism that many turned a blind eye to. Um, and, you know, the ways that we think about this is that, uh, you know, people tend to believe that there is a zero-sum game to this uh, idea of free speech, that we have to invariably choose between hate speech as free speech or the dignity of human beings. And that, you know, we have to choose between these two. That's something that you know, is the reason why we find ourselves where we are. In in the script for Gran Torino and, and in the finished film, but I mean, do you think those those slurs were put in there as jokes? Or in other words, was the audience reacting the way the scriptwriter and the director ex wanted them to and expected them to? Or were the slurs in the film to show that this character has these awful views and the audience is bringing its own racism and into their their viewing of it or their experiencing of it and their reaction is 
likely not perhaps what was uh, intended. What do you think? Right. Where I stand on this issue is that it doesn't matter what the intentions are of the writer or of the filmmaking process or the filmmakers themselves. Um, you know, it could have very well been that, you know, Walt Kowalski and the use of the slurs served as an allegorical um, function in the storytelling, um, right? And it could be that that's how it was written. But my point has always been that the consequences are, if it wasn't written as a joke, then it's there's something to be said about the fact that people were laughing at the, the slurs because they thought that it was a joke. And, you know, this laughter was something that, you know, I had been writing about and talking about for so long because it disturbed me so profoundly, right? Um, for someone who grew up having heard all these slurs, um, it just stang, stung very differently. Um, I knew clearly uh, after I continued giving more and more presentations that there was more to the laughter than just it being, um, you know, funny jokes. It, to me, dawned on me that at some point that Gran Torino was a kind of cinematic fiction that people lived in. And it really, it really was a chance for mainly white viewers to process their guilt and their racism through the moral ambiguity that was represented by Clint Eastwood's character, Walt Kowalski. The laughing wasn't a laughing at Walt, but a laughing with. And so it was their you know, process of identification. And so the viewing experience wasn't just a you know, harmless viewing experience of like, oh, you know, um, it's just a movie. It was literally a collective catharsis of people coming together to say, oh, that's not what's real anymore. Oh, we can laugh at it because it's in the past. Or, oh, we can laugh at it because it's so absurd. And just ignore the fact that, like, no, it's actually not absurd. People like myself have experienced it. And a lot of what people said is just, you know, all of that stuff. Oh, like, it's so absurd. Like, I've heard that all the time. And always, you know, people would say, oh, you know, it's not that serious because no one really talks like that anymore. Oh, you know, he, the fact that it's coming out of this old, you know, character, old white male character is precisely because, uh, you know, it's anachronistic. No one really thinks that way anymore. Or, you know, on the other hand, I had other people come up to me and say, I had a, a, a father just like that. And I want to believe that he will change too. And I know that he will. Um, the film showed us, clearly showed us, how, you know, we can transcend our differences to form this unlikely human bond um, that, you know, brings us together uh, rather than puts us apart. I think for me, you know, the problem also lies with um, when, you, when you mainstream the anti-Asian racism in a way in which, as you had said, it affects, you know, society's perception and view of one group. So one scene in the film, um, Walt, played by Clinton Eastwood, you know, warns Tao and his sister Sue, uh, don't touch my dog, meaning, and I think they were barbecuing or something, uh, but basically alluding to, right, Asians eat dogs, cats, whatever. I don't, there's a joke in there somewhere. And that really hit for me because during this COVID-19 time, there's so much of that that kind of racism, right, played out into Asians eat all kinds of weird stuff. And it came, the, the COVID-19 came out of the, a, uh, what do they call it, a wet market. And um, I think, I think I feel what you're saying in terms of so many years of these types of storylines or these types of characters and what they say does lead up to this idea that it can be believed all of a sudden when you've got something like a pandemic. I hope I'm making some sense here. <laughs> yeah. Um, so to add to that, in a lot of American-made films, and when they're telling stories of POC communities or people of color communities or marginalized communities, there is a, a hero Right, and the hero is usually a white person or the white savior. Do you talk a little bit about that and how, you know, that might also impact your views in terms of the racial slurs being problematic in the film and films like Gran Torino? Yes, 
at the time of my speaking up, you have to realize that it was back in 2008. A lot of the terms that we use now weren't a part of the political lexicon of the time or even of the cultural lexicon of the time. The cultural criticism of that time was really, you know, as I learned, pushing back against multicultural ideology. You know, a lot of what I experienced was people saying, racism does not exist anymore. Why do you keep talking about race? Why do you keep talking about racism? And that was what I faced. That was a lot of what I saw. And so, of course, many years later, when the term white savior um, or that trope became a thing, um, you know, it it was clearly something that I could connect back to the film. And, you know, funnily enough, actually, I believe that there is a video uh, on, on YouTube somewhere. I don't remember which publication it might have been or the media organization it was, but they... Um, they included, uh, they were talking about the white male uh, savior trope, and they included uh, Gran Torino in it. And so, of course, like that was funny to, to watch because I was like, wow, you know, a lot of what I've been saying is now finally being vindicate, vindicated um, because, you know, as I learned, the process of, uh, of identification uh, uh, from so many of the people that I, I met at my meetings and my talks that clearly it was about them living through the, that character. And that, you know, the Hmong uh, characters, uh, the Hmong American characters, just being there as aesthetic props, right? As a foil to this narrative, this much more deeply um, unraveled narrative of white saviorness and of white guilt. Uh, we were just the foil. We served merely as the, the, the tools for Walt to reach the point of his own reconciliation with his past and with his trauma as the, you know, also, you know, the silent, strong trope of, you know, Hollywood filmmaking. Um, so, yeah, I think that that's kind of what it is. And, um, you know, I guess something else I wanted to talk about is just really, you know, what, uh, to go back to your point about the slurs being so repetitive, right, and that everything was uh, harkening back to all of these very negative stereotypes of, uh, you know, Asian people eating dogs or whatever, um, as much as we were, uh, and the story uh, conveyed as being Hmong uh, and as having come from Vietnam, it, none of that really mattered, right? None of it really mattered that we were culturally and linguistically different from other Asian Americans. Um, but, you know, because we were Asian, we all ate dogs and, you know, were racialized exactly the same way. And that's what we're seeing today. And this is a part of the fact of, of racism, of the kind of Orientalism that uh, really cemented the ways that we talk and think about Asian Americans. Uh, when an idea about who a group of people and of a place becomes more and more stable and more coherent, it achieves a force as a social fact. And this way of thinking uh, produces a kind of, of absoluteness of the differences between people. And it gets reaffirmed over time through a kind of semiotic chain and extends into present day uh, pop culture and jokes and memes. And so that's where that comes from. You know, it's like everything that we're seeing that we have, uh, that Asian Americans have called out as racist are things that have always been racist all throughout history. A lot of some of these similar arguments or discussions and ideas were, were very big. Michelle and I were talking about this before the program started back in the 1970s with Norman Lear's All in the Family series, which for those of our viewers or listeners who are too young to remember, centered on this bigoted white working class uh, man named Archie Bunker in in Queens, New York. And if you go back and kind of read the the debates, which then mostly were in newspaper and, you know, critical uh, uh, publications, um, there was a lot of this very concern of, okay, you're showing him as a bigot. You're showing him in the, the realm of the, the, the series, and certainly from the point of view of Norman Lear, the producer and creator, um, that he is wrong. And yet they had to deal with the fact that, yeah, they had viewers who tuned in because Archie Bunker was their hero character. He was saying the words that they had always wanted to be seen. Um, 
and this may not be kind of what you were hoping to get into in this, but is there a way, is there a, how can't, what, or maybe there are some other examples of films and television that do expose the racism of a character, but maybe can do it without presenting some sort of rallying, uh, you know, something, someone to rally around for the racists who are, who are either totally missing the point or, um, enjoying seeing someone you know exhibit those those behaviors are there examples that that maybe maybe some good examples that you could share um i'll have to think about that but i guess i also wanted to say that you know with the archie bunker thing there were definitely connections that a lot of people made with that character uh between that character and walt and of course the problem with both is that as i came to realize there was a lot of humanizing of the racism and the uh, of the racism that was embodied by both characters and the humanizing i you know what i mean by that was precisely that you know they are shown as complex as characters that who develop over time as characters who are both awful but redeeming right um redeeming in some way and so i you know i think that for sure um, what I find will will change things, of course, is not that we celebrate the racism in some way, thinking that you know if we if we t uh, use them and disempower them by using them, then we somehow fix the problem of racism. No, I think that what really needs to happen is that we need to get over this idea of you know free speech as a kind of endorsement of of hate speech, um, because what we see is is that you know free speech orthodox orthodoxy convinces us that we should frame this discussion of free speech as as this you know choice between uh hate speech as free speech and dignities uh and our dignity as human beings and because of this you know we clearly can't um look to um you know political institutions and legal movements to really give us uh, to to stifle free speech, because what that does is it makes people more racist, right? Oh, you know, why can't the character say the point of the character being racist is that he says these things. So why do you guys want to cancel him? Why do you guys want to to control like speech, you know? And, and from what I've seen, like that has the effect uh, of, of curbing this kind of speech has the effect of you know making racists more racist so i think what needs to happen is not that we need to tell the stories from the perspective of a, of a white savior who redeems himself and of a white character who has to use these words you know this it doesn't have to be this way i think there are uh opportunities to uh to convey a an anti-racist story that doesn't require the use of these slurs uh, I think, you know, rather than perhaps humanizing Walt, like, why not humanize the Hmong characters and humanize the Asianness that, you know, the Hmong characters come to represent um, in a way that doesn't make them seem as as less than human. You know, they're seen as barbarics. They're seen as being hyper-violent gangsters. They're seen as, you know, quiet and meek as not human, right? Because the point is, is that they are Asian. And because they are Asian, they aren't necessarily always coded as human in the ways that maybe Walt is, because he gets the arc that everyone, um, you know, sees themselves through, you know, and that's how he becomes redeeming. Um, and, you know, I, I would say that that's what I would say to that question, but I don't think that there are any uh, clear examples yet that I can think of. I know that maybe Minari might be one good example, a recent example of that, I would say. Mm -hmm. With Steven Yun. Um, I, I was just going to ask, I mean, you know, in the movie Gran Torino, Tao doesn't even get his name correctly pronounced. You're Toad. You're not Tao, you're Toad. Uh, <laughs> which is also part of the whole anti-Asian racism uh, idea that we're all talking about. But a follow-up question to that is, you know, B. Vong wrote the script and not Nick Shank. Could B have told the story... I, not better, but with the same impact and not as racist, I guess. 
Um, if I could have done that. <laughs> well, I mean, like, if a Bivon, if it wasn't a Nick Shank, it wasn't a white guy who, you know, met a bunch of Hmong Americans at a factory shop that he was working at and wanted to make a film about Hmong Americans. Um, but it was actually a Hmong American who wrote the script or co-wrote it with somebody else. Could it have been told? I, yeah, the word is better. Could it have been less racist and still get the point across? I would like to answer this question, but I also think that the the answer is a lot more complicated than how I would how I would frame it, you know, in my own words. I don't necessarily believe in essentializing race to this extent that if it was written by a Hmong person that it would somehow, you know, get the point across better. Um, but I also believe that it's a very important for Hmong Americans and for any person to tell their stories on their own terms. And I believe that when um, when we get the opportunity and the chance to do that, um, you know, that will make a difference in the stories that we tell and how we tell them. You know, I think that for the longest time I've been talking about um, this very question, right? And over the course of the years that I've been talking about this, other films and other books like, you know, um, the book Precious by Sapphire, that was a very contentious book and film for the African-American community. And whether it was a, a film that was giving more space to black representation and film, or whether it just really trafficked, trafficked in a very negative and racist stereotype, even if it was written by a black person and was written by a black writer and directed by a black filmmaker, like, did that make a difference? I think that it did, but at the same time, I still think that it's problematic, right? In many ways um, that we can think about Gran Torino being problematic, even if it wasn't written by a Hmong person. Um, could you talk a bit about the reaction you've gotten to that NBC op-ed and kind of two parts. In general, what have you been hearing back, positive and negative? And second part, has Clint Eastwood or any other people involved in creating that film either directly or indirectly responded to you? Well, I think <laughs> that they may have got wind of it. Um, I'm not entirely sure if they ever heard of any of the things that I've been saying or have been writing about. Um, I definitely haven't heard a response that much is for sure. Um, and, but to answer the first part of your question, I, a lot of people, the way that they've been responding is to say that I am canceling Clint Eastwood and, you know, canceling Walt Kowalski and that I am jumping on the bandwagon of cancel culture and that I was a part of the problem of, you know, the social justice um, wave of people washing over this country and, you know, being a bunch of snowflakes. And so for me, like, it's just been the usual stuff that I, uh, that has been coming my way and I haven't been really phased by it because I kind of was expecting this to happen. When I was saying all this stuff 10 years ago, um, that you know this stuff was already being said you know as i as i said earlier you know people would say you're just too sensitive um i was raising a lot of these questions uh back then in 2008 9 10 11 and that was already what people were saying so it wasn't something that surprised me let's spend the uh, last few minutes together talking about the advocacy work that you're doing now and you're doing a lot. You're talking about a lot of issues and things. And so tell us, tell us more. Uh, yeah, I would love to. Um, I would say that uh, I wanted to start off by uh, just by prefacing that, you know, I made the transition um, professionally to, uh, to get back into acting because of all the advocacy work that I did. And it was through uh, the intellectual work that I did, uh, speaking up about all of these issues of representation, of visibility, of history, and of everything else that we've talked about today that led me to see the potential uh, and the potentiality of storytelling 
and that is what really empowered me to want to get back into acting and really you know galvanized me to uh to get back into acting and so you know part of this meant that i went on a journey after brown i also you know did a lot of uh studying as well as stage performances in you know theater and so while at brown and before brown i was taking courses uh, all the time you know obviously learning to learning my craft and so uh, simultaneously i was studying and getting really heavily involved and and looking at international issues global issues and issues of of warfare of of everything else that you know we've also discussed about and that led me to go on a route seeking journey as a Hmong American person uh, to Asia and my journey led me first to China where I you know I had learned the language and I went there because a lot of the folk tales that you know a lot of Hmong Americans and the Hmong diaspora uh, that is told in the diaspora uh, suggests that China and further up northeast is the ancestral place of Hmong, of Hmong people. Um, there are no, of course, no historical records to, to prove this, but you know it's a part of the folklore. It's a part of the, the myth, and whether or not we believe in the myth and the folklore is, is of course, a very a contentious issue within indigenous studies. Right? Just because it's not documented doesn't mean that it's not as real as something that is documented when we you know give this kind of privilege to documentation and to the written word we kind of give a, a privilege to um you know the written form at the expense of people without uh, written language so you know i a lot of these inner contradictions that i worked through and inner problems that i tried to overcame in my own thinking that led me then to also go uh, into doing work um, in Southeast Asia. And in the course of my studies and in the course of my own internships in DC, I you know, got really deeply involved in the issue of unexploded ordnance in Laos um, and the ways that it continues to affect so many people living there to this day. Laos is the country that gave birth to both of my parents, but it's also the same country that uh, today has does not recognize their birthright citizenship, even if they were born there, because of their ethnic background. Um, so I, going back there was definitely a very difficult, um, very different experience, and it was very difficult too, because the, the the memory and the history of the war hits really differently, and it wasn't the same as going to China. Um, and so, you know, it was from that point on that I continued to do more work on the unexploded ordinance, which led me to do uh, the advocacy work of, of you know, raising awareness around the issue of Agent Orange in Laos. And that issue is even more and is even less known because the focus, the international focus, is so uh, is so predicated on this issue of of the unexploded ordinances. And what I learned was that during um, the Vietnam War, the U.S. conducted this uh, uh, counterinsurgency program called. Uh, Operation Wrench Hand, and it was a defoliation program meant to destroy the forests and the croplands of Southeast Asia um, in order to clear this surface uh, to better um, interrupt uh, insurgents and the, the their efforts below the jung jungle canopy. So this was uh, what they were using this specifically was to target the Ho Chi Minh Trail, which uh, provided the cover of the forests to uh, the uh, Vietnamese independence movement. And so, you know, it was used specifically to destroy crops, to destroy the land and to destroy the forests. And to this day, you know, 20, millions, uh, 20 million gallons of those herbicides are still felt in Laos and Vietnam and in Cambodia. And so for me, you know, raising awareness about this, giving it visibility, that's what really empowered me and politicized me to want to continue to find a kind of position between being an actor and being an artist and being an activist and advocate. Um, and it's what really gave me the push to want to get back into storytelling, to want to get back into telling my people's history of, of giving voice and giving oxygen to the potential of, of our stories. And as someone who's 
not only doing so many different things in different fields, activism and students and, and journalism and, and acting, but specifically along the lines of what you were just saying, um, film, television, books, audio is one of those perhaps um, either your favorite or do you think that is the most effective at being able to tell a story where you can get deeply into, you know, all the niches of a background and, and all the story elements that you want to tell? As an actor, I would say that, you know, my bias is that I think that films are the most powerful tools um, for communicating certain things. And because of that, and because of the wide reach that Hollywood has globally, not just domestically, because, you know, every, everywhere and everyone around the world are watching Hollywood films. And so because of that, my belief is that filmmakers and writers have the responsibility to tell stories that not only educate, but also, of course, move us and, and write, you know, these stories in a way that is beautiful at the same time. Because people will watch films before they go to a, a, a book or to a magazine or to an article um, or to, you know, a podcast. People will always watch a film. And, you know, the film will be the first thing that gives them uh, their first brush with whatever the film is dealing with, right? You know, with Gran Torino, a lot of people that I met thought, oh, you know, Hmong people must be uh, dealing with a lot of issues, huh? Um, or, you know, oh, this is who the Hmong people are. And, of course, the problem is that, like, you know, the learning stops after, you know, the viewing ends, and it shouldn't. But, you know, that's why I say that the responsibility is on both audience uh, and viewers, as well as the writers and the filmmakers, to really engage people with uh, the real world. And it should get people to go and read and study and learn more and to do more to make the world into a better place. Last question for you. Uh, who in Hollywood are you dying to work with? Well, I've always wanted to get into uh, a Marvel film, so that would have been great. Um, currently... Wait, 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 wait. You can't pass that by. Who do you want to play in a Marvel film? Well, I wanted to do Shang-Chi, but, you know, I think that um, Simu Liao was the perfect choice for uh, that character. I really see him uh, embodying that character perfectly. Um, I don't know. I think I would have liked to have done something in Doctor Strange or uh, maybe something in Shang-Chi. I would love to have played maybe a, a villain um, opposite the superhero. Um, yeah, I, I, I don't know just quite yet. But I also don't know enough Marvel characters to be able to say which character specifically. But I will say to answer um, Michelle's uh, question is that Actually, growing up, I watched a lot of Wong Kar Wai's films. Chongqing Express, 2046, 2046, In the Mood for Love. Um, and so, really, the culmination of my career, um, like if I get to work with Wong Kar Wai, I would be happy to retire after that um, because he is actually the one person that I want to work with. And he is really, uh, you know, he and maybe Park Chan-wook are the two that I would really want to work with. Sean, last question, or I leave it all up to you. I, I, I don't want to destroy any of that. That was, that was interesting stuff, so go ahead. You finish it up. No, I was just going to say thank you so much, B, for sharing you and your thoughts. Um, you're a thought leader and coming on here and talking about Gran Torino. Uh, that was actually very healing for me and watching that film and thinking about future films as we become contributors to the future. So thank you so much. If people want to follow your work and follow you and support you, how can they do that? Oh, God, I, I really don't want to have to say it, but, you know, you can follow me on Instagram, uh, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, you know, hashed, uh, my handle is just bvang. <laughs> I never thought that I would say that in my lifetime, but I guess I, I have to now. Yeah, you do. Please follow B's work, and we look forward to seeing you on the big screen sometime soon. Thank you all for joining us this afternoon for this important conversation. And now I turn it back to John to end the program.
Well, my thanks again to Bivong and of course to Michelle for another good program. And to all of you watching and listening to us online, find out more programs at thecommonwealthclub.org slash MMS. We've got a lot of great stuff lined up and more stuff gets scheduled pretty much every day. So thank you. Have a good weekend. Take care of yourselves.